Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have John Quinn, a widely respected leader in the elite coaching field with experience across a diverse range of sports. John's career has spanned more than 30 years. He has worked with many Australians, leading athletes and coaches across sports, such as track and field, swimming, AFL, rugby league, tennis, cricket, bobsleigh, and soccer. Just a few of John's accomplishments include sprints and relay coach for the Australian track and field team at the 2000 Sydney Olympics, head conditioning coach and high-performance manager at the Essendon Football Club from 1998 to 2008, Australian fitness coach for two international rules series in the Australian island. He was the high-performance manager of the Greater Western Sydney Giants from 2010 to 2014, academy director as well at the GWS Giants, from 2015 and the director of the QESS Exercise Physiology Services both in Sydney and Melbourne. Before we start episode 40, the Prepare Like a Pro podcast mission is to empower aspiring athletes and staff while strengthening the AFL community by providing practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals. If you like the show, please support us by following us on Instagram and subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. I can see John's joined us, so I'm going to send the invite over to you. John, bear with me. Here we go. Got the invite coming over to you now, mate. Thanks for joining us, Gus, Ethan. Good to see you, mate. Alex, Jesse, Joe, send through your questions, guys. Jordan, hey, mate. Good to see you. James Wolf's in. Long time no see, mate. Here we go. John's on. Hey, mate. Oh, look, technology is great, isn't it, when it works? How good is this? Very good. I'm glad it's working. I was worried it was never going to work. We didn't even do a trial run, mate. We just no, no. rolled on and got it done. Mate, I've just walked in the door from training, so it's perfect timing. Oh, well done. Where have you come from? Who are you training? I've got my squad. I've got a sprint squad here in Sydney. So Benderia Boyer is my leading athlete. She's a 400-metre runner. And then I've got a number of sprinters, 200-metre runners mainly. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so good. No, all good. Yes. Well, let's dive into it, mate. Take us... Back to the beginning, John. At what age did you recognise you had a passion for health and fitness? Oh, look, I grew up in country New South Wales, and when you grow up in the country, it's probably not that much different in the city, to be honest. I think as Australians, we're all pretty active, and it's just part of the culture. And I was active as a young kid, mainly playing rugby league. I played a lot of rugby league as a young kid in a country town called Yak. How much did you get out of that? I, I, I started to just tell you that I grew up in a country town uh, about half an hour outside of Canberra called Yas. And in that yep. town, you could only really play rugby league in the winter. And in the summer, you played cricket. And that was about it. You could do a bit of swimming. So that was really my key sports as a young, a young kid growing up. And I ended up not only playing rugby league, but I refereed rugby league. I did uh, a three-year stint refereeing in the Canberra district. I also coached a junior team. And it was through coaching that junior team that I actually uh, discovered myself coaching athletes and I was only 17 years of age so I was still at school and I, I was running myself but I started coaching so I'm 56 now so I'm uh, really looking down the barrel of a 40-year coaching career at the moment. Yeah. So 17 years old you started coaching a rugby what was it an under 18? Well, I'd been coaching a junior rugby league team and there was a young boy in the team that was particularly fast and his father they lived on the prop father came in to pick up his son and I yep. said to him Dean's a very good runner. You should um, consider getting him some coaching for sprinting. And he went, oh, you think so? I said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, oh, when do you want me to bring him in? And that's how I became an athletics coach. And that one grew to two, grew to five, grew to ten. And I met a a new arrival in town. It was actually the local butcher who'd come to Yass. And he was right into his professional running. And uh, he was very enthusiastic. And uh, together we set up the Yass Athletics Club in 1982 or 1983. And uh, it became uh, a very – we had 85 members. That was quite big. And – 
I had no idea what we were doing. We were just having fun and we were traveling around New South Wales and going off to country championships. And these kids were going seriously well. We had athletes going off to world junior championships and making national finals and so on. And it was all just good fun. And I was working at the time I'd left school now and I was working at the local hospital, but I think I spent as much time actually running the athletics club by newsletters, publishing newsletters and organizing meetings and fundraisers and trips into Aubrey and Wagga in Sydney. And I got a tap on the shoulder from an organization called Little Athletics New South Wales. And they asked me if I'd like to be their education development officer. And I moved to Sydney. I was at the ripe old age of 20 and became yep. the education development officer for Little Athletics. And my job was to travel far and wide in New South Wales. I used to do about 140,000 kilometers a year going into schools, trying to get kids to join athletics, getting local communities behind athletics, setting up clubs, running clinics, seminars, workshop, work at School of the Air, any any type of school in New South Wales, I've pretty much been there, I reckon. And that that's really how my coaching started because I had to communicate with large groups and, and setting up clubs with, with organisations. And whilst I was doing all that travelling, I was coaching a group of athletes here in Sydney, juniors, but they were going pretty well. And yeah, I was obviously getting a bit of notice because I became involved with the, the national program as one of the national junior event coaches and yep. my career just sort of kept going from there really. Fantastic yeah but you can see you have a passion for it you mentioned the fun and, and how it just grew the numbers the power of the people by the sounds of it. Is the athletics club still going? Yes going and uh, yes I still uh, have a little bit to do with it not as much as I probably like to to be honest but no it's still going and they're still uh, producing some good athletes uh, coming out which not bad for a small town but it's it showed me from the very outset what you can do with just a group of enthusiastic people that are motivated and and you're there for the right reason. And the reason is to provide an activity for, well, we're mainly kids, adults got into it as well, but athletics is a great sport. It's good for everyone. And uh, yeah, for me, it was uh, a hobby that just got out of control. And I've, yeah. I've never really worked a day in my life. I just love what I do. And and athletics has underpinned every role that I've ever had in, in the, whether it be in sport or sports science or medicine. The athletics has underpinned everything. Yeah, fantastic. And then how did that get you from working with in the athletics world and building a name there to then working in team sports like the AFL? Well, no, it's a bit of serendipity, I think, because I, I was working at Little Athletics and I knew that if I wanted to have a career coaching-wise in well, mainly athletics, I was thinking, I would need to get qualified. And there was a degree came up the first time ever uh, in coaching. It was sports coaching and it had this little attachment on it, sports coaching and exercise physiology at the mm. New South Wales. So, I did that and little A's allowed me to just work around the schedule of university. So I was working, but I was a student. So I did my sports science degree. And by the time I'd finished, I was asked by the AIS if I would be interested in working with the AIS. And they were just starting a decentralization program. And I was offered the choice. I could either go to Townsville and set up like a satellite program outside of um, Brisbane for the Queensland Academy of Sport, or I could go to Tasmania and set up the first ever institute for track and field in Tasmania. So being the control freak that I am and was at 26, I decided I'd go to Tasmania. So Fantastic. I'm down in Tasmania and I'm running the program down there, which has really only got four key programs in it, rowing, cycling, hockey and track and field. And all the other sports would feed into it. So if an athlete was playing uh, tennis, for example, and they needed speed, well, they could only come to the track and field coach. So I was mm. teaching all of these different sports how to run or move or recover or whatever. AFL is the number one sport in Tasmania. I'd never seen a game of AFL and I had no interest in AFL to be quite honest, but it was everywhere. And I had the institute had a program for up and coming AFL players and they were sent to me for strength, conditioning, rehab, speed, agility, nutrition, whatever. And I was just advising these young enthusiastic boys what they needed to do. And 
then they'd contact me and say, oh, thank you for so much. I've been drafted. I'm going to go to Melbourne Football Club or I'm going off to Adelaide, whatever. And I was just, oh, that's fantastic. And, mm. yeah, it was just incredible the way things happened where I was approached to actually initially to go to Geelong and it was to be the head of performance at Geelong. And I knew the guy who was Gary David, who was the um, boss at Geelong at the time. Well, some listeners may know that Gary Davidson is from Tasmania. And I worked yes. with his son to get his son fit and ready for the AFL proper. And Gary asked me, would I be interested in coming to Geelong? And that's how that came. And I can still remember Gary ringing me and saying, oh, look, I'm sorry, mate, but uh, look, we've been able to attract one of the best in the business. And he was talking about Loris Bertolacci. So Loris yeah. Bertolacci moved on to uh, Geelong and left Essendon. And uh, lo and behold, I get this phone call left of centre from Essendon Football Club. And within a couple of weeks, I find myself, I've moved. And it was just the perfect timing. And I was really moving to Melbourne to get into a bigger city where I could coach track and field. I, football was just the means to an end. I, I'd still, by the time I started at Essendon, I'd still not seen a game of AFL at any That's level. amazing. And I end up at one of the biggest clubs in the land and it changed my life forever. And so did you start managing the conditioning at Essendon, did you? And then work your yes. way up to high performance manager? Well, in those days, we weren't called high performance managers. They're just names to, to make you sound more important than what you really are. And when I got there, I was the head of fitness, and it was basically it's the same job as a high performance manager. So I was yep. the head of fitness there, and I know that my first meeting there was with my assistant, and he's quite well known in the circles of AFL. His name was Andrew Russell, and oh, Andrew yes. was very, very concerned. We had a, our first meeting in the – if anyone's been to Windy Hill, they'd know the, the cafe next door. We went into the, the cafe and I said, right, and I've got a serviette out. And I said, just draw the field on there and you tell me where the different positions are and what their key roles actually are. And he looked at me and said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I better get to know what they do. And uh, so look, you I must have learned quick. Bit. Well, in some ways, yes. But it, look, it was actually a blessing in disguise because I came into the game with no preconceived idea and I just backed my own judgment. I followed the game once I got in there. I started looking at what was going on and, and worked in with the coaches. But I did what I do with a track athlete that comes to me. They might be, for example, a 400-meter runner. But what's the individual strengths of that person that I'm coaching? And I'm coaching people, not a footballer, mm. not an athlete, not a cricketer. I'm coaching a person. What is it that I have to do to bring out the best in that person to allow them to perform to their highest level. And so at Essendon, I just went through the players I'd never heard of. One, for example, was James Hurd. He was a superstar yeah. in the game. I'd never really even heard of James Hurd. And we started talking about, at, when I got there, he had an injury. And the injury was a very common symptom. But if you had it, you basically didn't recover from it. And yeah. my whole thing with Hurdy was to guide him and get his strength stuff. And ultimately, we got a an operation done. And it was a surgery, but it was also coming at the whole game with a different perspective. And I had a different perspective to the game of AFL. It was like 400-meter runners. It was long, explosive, repetitive work that went for two hours, and they had to be super fit, have a great base of conditioning under that, but they had to also be able to repeat uh, with speed and explosivity over and over and over again. And I was able to drill that into them, and Kevin Sheedy gave me full licence to do that. Uh, because he's got a great love for track. And, yeah, he gave me full licence to do that. And uh, I think our two – well, we're both eccentric characters, let's face it. Uh, Sheedy's is far more eccentric than me, but we're both loonies. And uh, I think we just got on like a house on fire, and he yeah, let me run my, my program, and it clicked. Yeah, it was yeah. great. And 
So it sounds like the relationship clicked quite naturally, but was that an intention in yours? Like is track and field, when you're the conditioning coach with track and field athlete, what's your team look like compared to a football club? Is it just... You had a, you had a whole team to do everything. The only support we sort of got in track and field when we'd be always trying to drum it up was for the media. But I was well trained for that with the Tasmanian Institute of Sport because track and field was a high and is a high profile sport in Tasmania. And as the head of, head uh, coach of track and field in Tasmania, I had to drive a lot of that profile that they needed. So that side of it, I, I could really adapt quite easily to. But it was just the whole world of football was just so unique and different. But I, I just, I, I don't take myself too seriously. I think you, I'm there to get the most out of people. And regardless of the sport, you look at what the needs of the individual are and how mm. can I make you better, not how can I make you better to make me look good. It's what do you need? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What have we got to work with? And let's go for it. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's focusing on the on bettering the person in front of you, which yeah. if you're a coach at 17 years old working on your craft, you, I mean, you become quite selfless pretty early on. Yeah, well, you're there. You understand that you're a, you're a coach and, and that was my role and my job. And when I went into AFL, it was like, well, what are the, the needs of the game? What are the physiological demands going on in the player? What's required here? And I didn't have any of the preconceived ideas. I can still remember Sheed saying to me in the very first couple of months, shouldn't we be doing long running, more, more like 10K runs and things? And mm-hmm. look, to his great credit, he backed me in and I got the players' fitness doing things that were quite different in those times from we were doing low gradient hills, massive explosive reps on the hills with a jog back recovery. And we were doing different type of weights. We were doing contrast weights with lots of plyometrics and one of the first things I did at the at the old Windy Hill was put in a, a synthetic track indoors so we do things like well they hadn't done things like power cleans much so they were doing power cleans in the gym and then going up onto the indoor track and doing explosive runs and crashing in like it almost like world indoors into a crash mat at the end of the runway and the players adapted to it really well the players took me on and I had an instant rapport with the players and it was just one of openness and honesty you don't bullshit players they can smell that a mile off this is what we're doing this is why we're doing this what you're going to get for it and the players all bought into it and that relationship got stronger and stronger as the years went by that's uh, that's pretty cool to hear that the coach bought into and trusted someone that's like you said was quite oh. raw to the game well i think she's actually quite like that aspect of it and and he when he was a player himself he'd gone off and done some running training he got a coach to teach him how to run properly and that improved his game so the fact that i had uh, yeah. had the running background he really resonated with that and and not that he's ever really said it but i think i'd spent years Years. Like I'd been at university and done a degree in coaching, and I'd been coaching track and field since I was 17. So here I am now in Tasmania, in, uh, in Melbourne, and I'm hitting 30. I'd been coaching for a long time. So I was actually, forget whether I'm into AFL or whether I'm into athletics or whatever I'm into. At the end of the day, I'm a coach, and I was yeah. there to bring the best out in people to coach the person. And I think she did see that. So I was there, and I became just one of his coaching staff that happened to be in charge of fitness and their recovery and getting them up for the next game. And how about game day role? Was, was that was it common back then for the conditioning fitness guys to be involved on game day? And, and if that were the oh, case, I, well, again, I probably, I, I probably took liberties that were different, and I, I didn't see them as taking liberties. I just saw this is something you need to do. For example, the players used to come off the ground and just sit on the bench. I could just not, I could not work that out one bit. I mean, if I had an athlete, uh, say a four hundred meter runner, and I think AFL players in a track and field sense, they're akin to a cross between a four hundred and eight hundred meter runner on the track. So there's high levels of lactate when they when they do training and play the game so the last thing i'd do with my 400 meter runner after i've done a high effort repetition on the track is sit down on the ground where the lactate can pull so i would move them so i don't remember 
the time, it caused a bit of a stir and they had to actually get um, clarification that was okay to do it. The players would come from the ground and I'd take them for a walk along the boundary line and we'd walk up and come back and then I'd have them doing activation work in between. So they'd do activation sprints. It, it, it caused, caused such a stir in 99-2000. I know it used to make uh, a part of the game discussion. You know, look at the Essendon players. They're doing all this. They're doing a session while they're actually playing the game. For me, yeah. there's no session. It was keeping them in peak form. And uh, now that's commonplace. People wouldn't even think of that. The other thing that uh, was common sense to me was the sense, this whole thing about nutrition and hydration. And I did a post-grad uh, course in, actually I did it in science, but I majored in occupational health. And all of my examples of occupation were to do with full-time coaching of sport. And I honed it in on football. And I really um, went further and looked at hydration and how does hydration impact on your training. And if you're, for example, 1% dehydrated, and if anyone's listening to this now and you're thinking, well, I'm not dehydrated, thirst is not an indicator of hydration status. So half the time people are saying, oh, I'm hydrated, but they're not. You've only got to be 1% dehydrated. That starts to impact on your ability to make decisions under pressure. And on it goes. And as you go, 3% is really debilitating in, in a sport like AFL. So we've got very big on doing things like weighing our players for and after games, hydrating them during games. So when they'd walk the boundary, you'd always see the Essendon players hydrating with a power aid and all these sort of things to have them uh, ready for max effort. So it, I became uh, quite scientific, I suppose, in the application yeah. of recovery for the players. But I've always had the philosophy of just keep it simple, stupid. You don't have to make it you're some great intelligence. Just break it down into the most simplistic, usable form for people to engage, and then they'll embrace it. And the players did. I gave them the facts about this is why we're doing it. This is this is why you're walking the boundary. It's going to break down lactic acid. This is when I give you a drink. Don't say no. I'm not asking you do you want one. I'm telling you to drink the bloody stuff. So yeah. drink it, and we're going to weigh you after. It's not an optional. You're doing it. And the players bought into that, and the coaching staff bought into that. But don't forget also, like Kevin Sheedy might have been the head coach, but he had fabulous assistant coaches led by Rob Shaw, a Tasmanian, who I also had an instant rapport because I've been at the Tasmanian Institute of Sport. So those sort of things yeah. really played into changing the culture of sports science and conditioning at Essendon Football Club, and that permeated other clubs because you tend yeah, to play follow the you play follow the yeah. leader of it. They're doing it. We have to do that too. That's human nature. Yeah, yeah. Loris, he was on the podcast, mentioned West Coast, Geelong, and, and Essendon. Uh, you three were sort of pioneers in a sense of the doing more explosive anaerobic based work rather than the steady state running. To have the players down, so this is they used to go on ten k runs, but I'd have them doing repeat sprints. So we'd go and they, I'd taught them how to run properly. So they'd come down to the, the track there at Aberfeldy near Essendon, and we'd be doing all short explosive sprints like they were sixty meter runner. But then mm. after our key training session, so on a Wednesday, they'd have to do rep one fifties. So they'd run from point post to point post pretty much and then they'd jog to the, the 50 and then they'd do the other one to the next point post and on it would go. They were gruelling sessions but the players were never run off their feet because of them. We were a high, highly efficient anaerobic machine when they went into those games of 2000, uh, 99, 2000, 2001. I think Essendon were doing things a little bit differently than the rest of the comp. It's now commonplace and it should be and it's now up to people that are in those roles to look for the new edge in terms of training and performance of, of where the future's going in terms of training. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's uh, some great stories there. Thanks for sharing. Along that way, along your journey, and I know you're only really at the halfway point there. There's, there's plenty more that you did after Essendon, but who were some strong influences on your career? Oh, no, no, good question. Because I, here I am in this country town, and so I, I really fed off the enthusiasm. I said the, the local butcher, and he became a very good friend of mine. His name was Don Parks, and he's still in the town of Yass and still involved in athletics. But Don's enthusiasm was infectious, and it was through Don. I started reading more and more. I'm working at the hospital, but I'm reading books, and, and I was always a fan of what young 
athlete at the time or even anyone in the world, every, you, you speak to any kid in the, in the world right now and they all know who Usain Bolt is. They can tell you who Usain Bolt. Well, when I was a kid, my Usain Bolt was a superstar called Carl Lewis and I looked at everything Carl Lewis did. And when you look at Carl Lewis, even compared to Usain Bolt, technically he's a better runner than Usain Bolt. He's just not quite as fast, but his technique is like second to none. And mm. so my very first influence was looking at Carl Lewis, the athlete, but who coaches him? And it was a guy called Tom Telez, who's world famous in track and field circle. And I just devoured everything I find of what Tom Telez said. So I haven't met Tom Telez, but I know I know a hell of a lot about Tom Telez and what his philosophies were. So that influenced me. I told you that I was working for the athletics club at Yass and doing those things. Well, this guy came to town doing his coaching and his name was Tony Rice. And Tony Rice went on to be one of the national coaching conveners and, and involved with coach education. He's also had a big impact on my career. And of course, when I went to Little Athletics, the boss there, he was almost like a zealot for taking the sport to the to the masses. And like I said to you earlier, I used to travel about 140,000 kilometres every year traveling around around the state. And it was driven by, it, it, was, it was almost like a missionary zeal. And Peter yeah. Shinnick was the boss of Little Athletics in New South Wales. And he and I just got on. I, I just shared his vision. And I still do. And I still look at, well, how can we make that better? And it's not about having people come to the sport. How can you take the sport to them? How can we make it more accessible to them? And it's about what you can do and what you can give to the community. That's what was important. And it still is important. And I only had this conversation with Bendiria Boyer about two weeks ago. And I heard Peter Shinnick's voice as I said it. I said to Bendiri, whenever a young kid comes to you for an autograph, never turn away. Always spend time with that young kid. They could be a superstar of the future and you spending 30 seconds of your life might change their lifetime. And she she embraces that. So Bendiri will always spend time with the kids and talk to them about what she's doing. That was the influence of Peter Shinnick. Now coming into a whole new generation of high-performance athletes in this country. I went from there and I, I ended up at the Institute of Sport and rest his soul, Peter Bowman. He was the in charge of track and field. And I was the young punk. I was only 26 when I started at the Institute. And I'm sure a lot of people, I'm absolutely positive, particularly people in Tasmania would have thought, what the hell? Who's this guy coming in trying to tell us what to do? I didn't have support of Peter Bowman. I had 120% backing. Everything I needed was provided by Peter Bowman. Just go and do it, mate. You run the program as you want. I don't think I could have developed without someone like that behind me and the zealot-like you know, enthusiasm that I had brought in from Peter Shinney. And then yeah. I met people whilst I was working for the Institute. I've been very close friends with him to this day. And he's one of the national throws coach, but the process is still the same. But Peter Taylor and I have become very good friends and we used to share enthusiasm, the downs and the up. And how could I answer your question now without mentioning probably the person who's had the greatest influence on me professionally and personally in my career, Kevin Sheedy. From the yeah, time right. I first met Sheedy, we just clicked and like he's a nutcase and he yeah. thinks so laterally and I think laterally and we're both nutters and we, he'd think to the left and I'd think to the right and we'd meet around the back. So it was just, a, it was almost like it was meant to be and now I try to involve other people in what I'm doing and, uh, and encourage them on and mentor people and look to other people for guidance even to this day I've been doing it so yeah mm. I'm sure I've left someone out of there but uh, there's been many many people that have influenced me and my greatest teachers are probably the athletes that I coach to be honest with with that connection that you had with Sheeds uh, and you guys had such great success like would, would you say that connection and and the fact that you guys clicked was one of the major considering contributions to performance for the leaders of a club how, how much do they need a click well, I, th- I think there was a combination of things when I first went to the Bombers again I didn't know who any of the players were. I'd heard of James Hurd, but I didn't. Re- I honestly didn't really know any of them. And one of the first players to darken my door on my first day there was James Hurd. 
And not only did I recognise the name, he was also from Canberra and he was also, he had a navicular stress fracture. And mm. I, it was a, that's a running injury. So mm. when he came in and said, oh, I've got this navicular stress fracture, I almost thought to myself, oh, thank God, something I, I know. So yeah. little did I know, he'd already had, at that immediate point, he'd had two navicular stress fractures and no one has ever really come back in a strong sense from that. This is going back, remember, 1999. But I said to Herdy, look, yes, I know the navicular, just do do this. And he went through exactly what I told him to do and we got him back. It was a, one of the first games of the year. We got him back in 99 to play early on and I think the game had only been going for about 20 minutes and he did it again and he knew and he came to the bench and he was on the tier, on the bench in tears and I just didn't know what to say. Here, here I was in this new role and I've got one of the greatest players I'd learned from that time. He'd won the Brownlow and he's sitting beside me and he's in tears and I knew that I was responsible for actually breaking him down and this was the third time he'd done the navicular. No one's ever come back in my understanding from three navicular stress fractures and the game ended and he went back to his home and I had to go over there and he just said to me what do you want me to do yeah. and I looked him in the eye and I lied I said I've got a few ideas mate but now's not the time to talk about them yeah. and he said oh well played. Hey, mate I was wrapped with guilt I went home and I didn't sleep a wink that night and I just tossed and turned and somewhere in the recesses of my memory bank I'd been in Germany with a, an athletics squad over there and when the athletes were you know not training and stuff I used to go off to the universities or I'd go to the hospitals or whatever and I met this guy over there his name is Muller Wolfer I met Muller and he was talking about this new discovery they'd made to stimulate bone growth so I contacted Muller Wolfhart. in those days the internet wasn't like it is now but anyway I got hold of Muller and he had this stuff uh, called osteoprotein 1 and anyway cut the story short as I can we organised for Therapeutics Goods Act the TGA approval brought the drug into Australia we had to make sure it was covered by Asada and all of those things but Muller Wolfhart injected it into James Heard's foot and I did the rehab stuff over the course of the year and held my breath and started going to mass and what he, he was up by the end of the year and he was a captain of the team in 2000 and we never looked back. The yeah. fact that James Heard got back into the game also underpinned my role within the game of AFL because Heard was a hopeless case and I'd love to say that I was responsible for it but really what I was responsible for was nearly ensuring the demise of one of the greatest players the game has seen but thank God I'd spent some time listening and talking to people in Germany and and thanks to Muller Wolfart and the surgeons Julian Fellow in Melbourne, Hurdy got back and went on to have a, a continued illustrious career in the game. But it certainly established my trust among the coaches and throughout the AFL code. And uh, Essendon's success didn't do me any harm either. Yeah. Wow. What a story. I haven't heard that one before. That's an album. I reckon I've got a. I reckon I've got a few other stories up my sleeve for you. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. unbelievable. When you, there's a, there'd be a few developing footballers watching. What would be? I know one's asked a question, which this may cover it, but he's written. Uh, biggest thing you look for in a good player so if we reframe that into developing players what what do you try and look for and how do you that guy's going somewhere or does it vary too much oh no no it doesn't vary i think you look for the underlying things you can't coach attitude and you look for how hungry are they and despite setbacks that they have how eager are they to push through we just talked about james heard none of that would have been possible without his overwhelming enthusiasm to get the job done you're not just elite in outcome you're elite in action and actions 
how you prepare and what you do to get there. You can't be a part-time elite athlete. You are either in or you're not. So I look for that mindset within the individual. When a player comes to me, and this can apply to any sport, whether they're a track athlete or a footballer, I've worked with a lot of different sports and it's the same basis. I look at what the individual offers and where can we improve that. In most young players, so if I'm, if you're a 16, 17-year-old and you're listening to this now, don't worry about how much you can bench press or how much you can squat. What's your posture like? Let's get your posture correct for your mother or your grandmother nagging you about sitting up straight. That's a clue that you've got hunched shoulders. And if you're hunched over, you're not going to be able to bench properly. You're not going to be able to squat properly. So get the body properly balanced, front, back, upper, lower. Develop the athletic movement, not just in terms of running, but also how they move in the gym and how they lift. And then look at things as simple as mobility. What's your mobility like? And what are your recovery strategies like? Don't talk to me about you dream of being an elite athlete as you eat your Mars bar and, and wash it down with a bottle of Coke. If your diet's crap, it, don't, don't look for supplements. Look, I've got to have whey protein isolate because I read that that's what the athletes do. As you then go down and you, your supplements, Mars bars and Coke, for example, you're kidding yourself. So get all of the small details sorted out. And I look for that for the young athletes that I'm working with and make sure that they're empowered with knowledge in terms of what they have to do, when they have to do it, and keep reinforcing that. So it's the life you lead, the actions that you pursue, but also get the, the, the fundamentals in place. And for me, the fundamentals are posture, movement, and mobility. Fantastic. That's great. That's yeah, packed with gems there for, for those listening, young footballers, and even current. I'm just sitting now, keep my chest <laughs> Oh, I'm <laughs> watching you. It. it can be a bit of an afflict. What was that movie where the guy saw dead people and he didn't realise he was dead himself and he could see dead people? I, I feel yeah. a little bit like that sometimes where I'm walking on the street and someone will be in front of me and I'm analysing, oh, you poor bugger, you've got a bit of degeneration of your left hip there. Well, mm. There's something wrong with your knee. Oh, you've really got to get that neck looked at. So it's just a, a movement and you can see what they have to do in terms of there's the pathology, that's the the symptom, what's the cause, let's work through that. And uh, yeah, so that, that's what I do for a living and uh, I've done it now for a while and, and I love doing that. And when you see the result and people improve just by making those fundamental changes really to their, their movement pattern or even their postural alignment, it's, it's uh, very rewarding for them and for me. How about this? There's the same sort of question for, for developing staff that want aspiring coaches. What, what do you look for and, and what do you develop with the people that you've mentored along the way? <laughs> oh, look, this is probably inappropriate, but you, you wouldn't trust a fat dietitian. So I think your staff have to live the life they want players to be, and that's discipline and control and enthusiasm. And they're the drivers of knowledge. So they should be pushing as much information as they can to the athlete. Now, if you've got young staff coming through, well, fill them with knowledge, push the knowledge to them of what you want, give them a role and give them a goal of what you uh, want to, to have. One of the things I really love is mentoring and I mentor in a private school now in Sydney, but I'm also mentoring at university. And it's about empowering those people to go out and bring the answers back for me. Let them take you on a, uh, a journey of discovery. And there's so much that we don't know. Don't be limited by things that you've done in the past. Look to the way things can be. And by uh, giving that role over to a young, enthusiastic person, that's only going to in- improve you as a coach anyway. So I think that's vital. You're going to stay relevant as a coach. Yeah, fantastic. There's another question come through from James. Did you find that your lack of familiarity in the AFL initially made it difficult to achieve buy-in from footy players or was, um, was that 
that overcome by building relationships? No, no, really good uh, question, James. I, I think it was honesty at the beginning. I remember standing up in front of the players and I just said to them, I've got no idea about football, but what I do know about is how to get the best out of people. And yeah. that, in fact, I told them that I, my, my exact words to, to the Bombers were, some of the most influential people in history have been short in stature. And the one that springs to mind is Hitler. And what you're going to find is that my short stature, I've got more in common with Hitler than just our lack of height. And it took a smile <laughs> off their face. They knew they were in. It came to that I, I told the players I didn't know about football, but I knew about getting people fit. I knew about getting them strong. And I knew the challenges of their game and that I would back them in 100%, but they needed to come with me. And yeah. it wasn't, you couldn't just talk to them about that. But when pre-season started, it had a very different feel for them in terms of the explosivity and movement. And I was quite big on their body composition. And we honed in on things like their summer skin folds like and how heavy they could be. What was the ideal mass? I honed in on what their explosivity needed to be like in terms of how fast they had to run five and 10 metres. Mm. I honed in on their explosivity to be able to jump onto a box to repeat effort. And we looked at chart and I was able to give each individual player a summary of what they needed. I also spent time sitting down with every player on the list from the very beginning and just asking them questions like, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And I think the two most empowering questions for me as a coach that I ask, yeah. and I do a lot, is I ask an athlete, and I, I'm talking AFL players as athletes, but I can be talking swimmers or hockey players, or I can be talking a young kid at school. Who do you most admire and who do you most dislike? And when they tell me who they most admire, they'll rattle off and I'll say, why? And they'll tell me why they most admire that person. And then when you ask them who they most dislike, they'll tell you. And what invariably comes out there is the truth of what they aspire to be. The person that they admire has qualities that they either see that they possess or that they want to hone and develop within themselves. So that tells you what their goals are. And when you ask them who they most dislike, that person invariably has some component within them that they fear within themselves. And yeah, that's yeah. what can motivate them. You motivate them through the fear of what they don't want to become. And you hone in on those and you structure your program up around those. Mate, coaching is actually really simple. Working with people is what's difficult. Regardless of the sport, you're mm. an AFL coach. That's fantastic. But you're not coaching AFL. You're coaching people. And what I want to do is I want to coach the person first and the player second or coach the person and the athlete second. And the athlete comes out if you find the person within there. What motivates them? What drives to be ultimately successful? Your role as coach is to put the stepping stones in place to allow the realisation of that. It's not rocket science. It's listening to people and, and building the pathway. Yeah, that's, it just seems like the things that you were doing back then are, are what a real focus is now in elite sport. Like I know at Hawthorne, the two years I were there with just, just 2018, 2019, the people first was a huge philosophy and the yeah the anaerobic side of the game post mm. steady state running the, the, the people the first amazing. one it's easy to say but you've got to be able to do that and it's easy to do that when you're winning it's when you're not performing that well that the true essence of that culture comes up people look at winning clubs for the culture that's fantastic I understand that and that's logical we know when I was traveling around the world I didn't go to some deadbeat club I was going to the biggest clubs in the world to see if I could find a trend or a, a trait that they had but at the same time it's when those successful clubs find themselves in hard times how well do they mm. bounce back from that and how well do they rebuild how how real is the culture or is it just some perception that's great for media and uh, again you just look within your club for those people that drive your culture and and if you're the leader do you live the culture yeah and that's something you mentioned before with staff you gotta live it 
like you yes. said, you're not going to trust a fat dietitian. I love that one. I think I, I've heard Paul Check say that before as well. I've, I've, I've been a fan of uh, Paul Check for a long time, but I've never heard him say that. But I thought I'm, I'm probably get sued by all these dietitians. But I'd look, I, I've, I used to have issues with dietitians. Actually, I've only ever sacked two people in my life, and they've both been dietitians. I just thought that they just do the old mantra of mm. nutrition, nutrition, and what they've been taught. I understand that, and I respect that. I've got a huge role, but I, I did a third degree. I, I did a postgrad in nutrition because I wanted to see, well, what am I missing here? There's something I've got to be missing. So I, I went to Deakin University to do do post-grad in, uh, in nutrition. And look, it's a very complex area. And I still think it's an area that we don't know enough about. We think we do, but we're, I think we're beholden to the multinationals that have their own agenda called problem. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we convince ourselves that this is the, the way to go on it and a healthy a healthy future. It's it's really interesting. I've, I'm coaching trackers and in my squad at the moment, I've got three refugees. They're Africans. And uh, the two guys that I've got, you would not find better specimens. Uh, they're absolutely ripped. Mm-hmm. And the thought of them having a sugary drink or a treat of an ice cream or anything like that is just so foreign to them. They wouldn't do that. And their diet is so simple in terms of what they eat and making sure that they've recovered for the next next session. I think sometimes you've got to look back to what we did well rather than yeah. forward for the, the latest trend or the latest supplement or whatever. It's in your basics. And like I alluded to before, you can take all the supplements you like. If your diet's crap or you supplementing is crap yeah. and we've got to get the basics right yeah that's yeah. what i learned from doing nutrition yeah yeah oh good lesson good learning <laughs> it reminds me i think it was matt o'neill an australian nutritionist said if your grandma doesn't know it don't eat it it's um, yeah, very good actually uh, it's a good uh one. i'm showing my age but i went to university the first degree i did in coaching and physiology i did with matt o'neill uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Yes, yeah, no, well, well back. Yeah, no, very, very good. And yeah, he's quite astute even back in those early days. Yeah, there you go, small world. <laughs> that just reminded <laughs> me of it. There you go. Didn't know that it was a. Maybe you got him. Maybe that was he stole that one from you. <laughs> no, well, I was probably the old boy in those days. I was 25 when I was at university, so he was only a, a spring chicken in those days doing this degree in sports coaching. And back then, we didn't know where we'd end up. But it was a very successful cohort. That one actually, there's probably a dozen of us that went off into major roles in different sports all around the world very successful course that was and that's one of them and you and so you went on to to gws was how did that work with kevin sheedy was he at still at essendon or did you guys go to gws together or he came on no you, you skipped a bit of a time i've been at essendon for, for nine years when she's left and matthew knights came in as the coach and matthew knights had a different view on how football should be and he and i didn't really see eye to eye on a lot of things and i think really 10 years was a long enough it was more than time for me to move on and after 10 years there well i pulled the pin but no one put up much of a fight for me to go and it was enough so i left the bombers at the end of 2008 and then i set up my own business so i started working at olympic park sports medicine in melbourne and Mm -hmm. i was working there one of the first clinical exercise physiologists in that sort of environment and that was going pretty well and i actually went over to the dark side i started doing some work with the arch enemy of carlton and i was working with players like andrew carazzo and i had the great privilege of working with chris judd so i worked with juddy for the course of a year working through things like speed and agility and so on and the afl were terrific also the afl got me involved with their international rules series so i was involved with that for a couple of years and went to ireland with the international rules team and they were great experience and great exposure to the very best players across all the clubs so 
I, I love doing that. And the AFL have been a fabulous organisation to me. Like they've stood by me through thick and thin. But we, I, I continued on. I then got a, a tap on the shoulder. Would I be interested in doing some stuff? Oh, it was actually even when I was at Essendon. We had Graham Arnold, who was the coach of the Socceroos. He came to Essendon to find out what we were doing and so on. And I ended up doing some work with Arnie and travelled with the Socceroos to Kuwait and Bahrain and did yeah. work with them. And uh, that was at the the halcyon days of, of soccer. Guys like um, Harry Kuhl and Viduka and the like. And uh, that was that was a, a bit of an eye for me in many respects because I, I really thought they were behind what we were doing in AFL at the highest levels of soccer. They weren't embracing some of the sports science and things we were doing. That's what Graham Arnold was trying to bring into the Socceroos and they really did that. They subsequently put on Darren Burgess and Darren Burgess took AFL soccer to a different level, I believe, in this country. And of course, now he contributes quite significantly in AFL. Mm. And then I went to another sport that I actually didn't really like much. I, one of my other great mates, along with Matt O'Neill at Uni of New South Wales, was a guy called Jock Campbell. And yes. Jock Campbell went on to become the head of performance at the Australian Cricket. And he got involved with you know, the Indian Cricket League, the ICL, which was a rebel thing for the um, IPL. And he convinced me that it'd be a great opportunity to go to India for cricket. Well, I've hated cricket since I was a young kid, getting abused at Yas for not concentrating while the cricket was on. I never played cricket in Yas. I went swimming. But yeah, so here, then I find myself on the subcontinent with part of the ICL and I was with Bangladesh and we travelled all over the subcontinent. It's one of the greatest experiences of my life doing that and there's probably not a fortnight goes by, even some decade later, that I don't hear from one of the players from from that, that team. In fact, I had a, a conversation with the captain of the team just today and yeah. yeah, so no, it was a fabulous experience going to India for, for the cricket. And so then when I came back, I was just working along and I got a, a message from Andrew Dimitri that they were thinking of setting up a club in Western Sydney and I'd spoken to Andrew on one of those international rules series that there should be a club in Western Sydney and now if we go back to the very first part if any, if anyone's still awake I said that I used to I grew up in Yass near Canberra the Giants footprint was going to be based with Canberra my family my grandparents were from Blacktown which is where the initial Giants were going to be right. I travelled 140,000 kilometres over New South Wales most of the west I knew every part of New South Wales I knew it better than anybody else involved with the Giants when they were setting it up I was almost destined to be yeah. involved with the with the establishment of a team in Western Sydney that was going to embrace that part of New South Wales. And I'd already accepted the job before I realised that Kevin Sheedy was there. But I was wrapped to uh, team up with Sheeds. And uh, and it was almost like going back to the very beginning, like going back with Peter Shinnick to sell the game of AFL to uh, yeah, kids yeah, yeah. who didn't even know how to spell AFL. And here I am out there doing it again and getting him involved. And look, it was great. great. And yeah. well, it was. And, and then that led to all sorts of different things. So we, I got an, an alignment set up with the University of Western Sydney and I've got funding for two PhD students to come in and convince the board that it was a great idea to spend $30,000 on these glasses. They like they look like sunglasses, but what they do is they measure the movement of your eyes and through the measurement of your eyes, it can determine whether you've got good decision-making, average decision-making or poor decision-making. So kids who couldn't care less about AFL, we'd go into their pool and do this testing with kids to test their speed, test their endurance, test their mobility, but more importantly, test their aptitude for the game of AFL with decision-making glasses. And we were mm. putting them on those. Mate, that was fascinating study. And those papers are about to be published now. So anyone who's oh. get out there now and have a look. Uh, the two students that I was part of the supervising <coughs> team for, uh, a young girl, Muslim faith, and that was breaking new territory too for AFL, having a Muslim girl playing AFL. So Lael Kass came in, and so she's soon to be Dr. Lael Kassan. And another young guy who was already qualified as a dietist, oh, Lael by the way, was a physio. Okay. Andrew Sharp came in, so soon to be Dr. Andrew Sharp, 
came in as a one of the students as well and did these fascinating studies. And I think it's it's still going to come through, but that will change the way we recruit players in the AFL. And I believe there's the essence where we'll be able to safely determine whether a player's actually concussed or not, because you could actually look at their pre-head knock footage, look at what mm. their decision or their eye movement patterns were, and then compare that if they'd been come to the bench. So the days of oh, making an educated guess or holding up two fingers or asking them how they got to the ground, that's gone. Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. what we've been doing at the Giants or what we were doing back then, that'll lay the foundation for the future of concussion, diagnose and uh, return Fantastic. to play protocols. Yeah. That's that's to come. So that's very exciting for the AFL. And I think it's something that the AFL should be very proud of because it's going to change that, that technology worldwide. Yeah. They created the glasses themselves. This is an Australian invention or it's been... No, no, no. They, the glasses uh, came about actually to uh, determine something completely different and it was right. to do with brain tumours and to do with the impact on vision in hospital and uh, there was a point when I was at the Giant, I'd only been there for a few years going along pretty well and I started acting quite strangely, missing going to meetings and so on and it came to a bit of a head or it actually came to a head when Gubby Allen, who was our footy manager, he's a fabulous guy, he's one of the best I've worked with by the way, but mm. Gubby, he rang me to say, mate, you meant to be at a meeting and I said, oh yes, um, sorry, I've been caught up, I had a meeting with Sheeds, we've just been discussing selection and uh, look, I'm on my way and he went, oh alright, well come and see me when you get here mate. So that was a, probably a good story, the only problem was Sheeds hadn't been at the club for over a year and I was totally off my head. I didn't know what was going on. Anyway, it turned out Gubby got me sent in to get checked and I had an autoimmune disease which had attacked my brain and it was right. it's called limbic encephalitis. And anyway, that deteriorated quite quickly from there and I spent almost a year in hospital and in, in a care situation and the prognosis initially wasn't very good because uh, I'd had a number of seizures that I'd kept from people and they'd left with lesions on my brain and there were seven of them and the reality was that for each one of those lesions that had a 90% chance of becoming an inoperable brain tumour and yeah. mine, thank God, didn't. But one of them impacted on the vision in my right eye. And so these glasses I were putting on me to track how much the seizures had impacted on my eye and whether I was actually going to lose vision in that eye and, and how bad the damage was. So while they were talking about my eye, I was thinking, <laughs> could we use this to identify movement for tracking a football or identifying a relay baton coming into the hand as you exchange top speed. And so, yeah, that, that's seriously how that came about. And I chased up the glasses from that. So their foundation was in medical, but um, I found a use for them. And, and what I'd love to do now is expand that study into athletics, particularly for the four by one. And look, we could actually see, imagine having uh, those glasses on an athlete at the Olympic Games in Tokyo as they come into the exchange zone and you can actually see them pushing the baton into, into the hand. I mean, it takes realism of television into a whole new yeah. spectrum. So yeah, we're, we're looking at that. And the other thing that grew from that, I know I'm waffling, but uh, the other thing that grew from that is I believe that we can move that because now we've got patterns of movement that we can see. And I think the future is going to be in holograms and uh, a little bit, yeah, well, a little bit like um, the old movies back in the 70s of Star Wars, where they had the holographic imagery of uh, Princess Leia delivering the message to the uh, robot. Yeah. Uh, I think that that will be with players, and soon it won't be a case of Toby Green from the Giants playing on Dylan Shield at Essendon. You're going to have the hologram of Dylan Shield and his most favoured aggressive play and how do we shut down that holographic image by moving here and there. I know that's out there but yeah. stay tuned. I reckon that's coming and it's born from the visual search patterns and and the all the data that we're getting in from uh, player movement on ground. Put them together and the hologram stuff is not that far away. 
Yeah, fascinating stuff. Wow, hey, that's yeah, that's super <laughs> I, didn't know we, I didn't know we'd be talking about that tonight, but yeah, no, now you yeah. started getting inside my weird brain. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thanks for letting us in and sharing. That's, mm. that's fantastic. That's yeah, it's, yeah, I've never heard anything like it before, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, what's coming next? Like GPS is oh, yeah. it's old now, so there's got to be something. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, well, I, I think the, the other area that's coming very fast is the GPS. We'll laugh about the GPS soon. I mean, uh, nanotechnology is, is something that's coming more and more. Or nanotechnology is where you can take something that's so big and make it small at its own microscope. Mm. So imagine we put the nanotechnology into a thread of fibre of a compression garment. That just that thread going across your chest can measure your sweat rate, your heart rate, your impact on your game, the pattern of where you've run. And all they've got to do is put on a top, put on their jumper. Yeah, yeah, It'll yeah. all be measured within the no jumper. Base. We can nearly do that now, and I think that'll come in too. So that will also lend itself to what we know are the actual visual search of players. I talked about Toby Green. I think. Toby Green's one of the most exciting players that I've worked with since working with a player like James Hurd yeah. and having a, a Toby Green. We've got all his visual footage. We know how he looks, where he looks, so on. We just apply that to what you're trying to do in your holographic image. You start to build the absolute prototype of what you want, excellence in decision-making for a footballer. Can you coach that? Can you train that? I don't know. At the end of the day, some people think they're God. You can't, we, we can't create talent. You can mm. just develop the talent. But if you've at least got a benchmark and a map, a guide map, well, then you can take creationist theory a little bit closer. Yeah, and maybe on. maybe fast track it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so. But you've got to ceiling. understand it. Yeah, you've got to understand what's at the basis of that. And what you've got to respect the past by looking back at, well, this works well. You've also got to be looking forward to where is this going to? Where can this take me? And it's infinite. There's no there's no limit. Only, only your ability to see it. And if you can open your eyes to what's possible, then you start moving towards that. Yeah, it is. That's yeah. exciting. It is yeah, super exciting. And it's my last question. Actually, what are you what, what are you excited about for 2021? It sounds like this this article that's all this research. But the research stuff, well, that that's that's sort of been the excitement for a few years. But in in a way, I'm still involved with football, and I still work with individuals within AFL, whether it's through the clinic in Melbourne or sometimes up here in Sydney. I do a lot of work with individual soccer players, so I've got that. But I'm spending 20 plus hours a week with a very elite squad of athletes. It's the best squad I've ever had, and oh. their ability to form it's just stretching my own limitations in terms of a coach to how do I get them to the next level. So we've got nationals here in Sydney in just over a week. And yep. so my group are now coming in terms of our peaking um, plan. They're starting to come together. But I've, the, the main athlete I've got in my squad, is, as I've spoken about already, she's the most exciting talent that we've had in this country since Kathy Freeman. She's a similar sort of level of Kathy at that age. But I, I think the future is very bright for Australian track and field. We've got some good athletes coming through and I'm, I'm beyond excited about being involved with the group of athletes that I've got in not just letting them or helping them find their own limits as an athlete but yeah. also helping to develop them as people and uh, what they're capable of putting back in to the sport and I, I just stay tuned it's exciting and um, looking forward to what's coming not just in 2021 but beyond that I mean we're already talking about 2024 and if you don't know the Olympics are in Paris that year uh, yeah. so we're looking at that already we've got to get this one out of the way in Tokyo first and yeah there's so many things that are going to come uh, over the next few years I'm wrapped to be, be here 
to be part of it. Fantastic. Well, you've captivated all 18. I've noticed no one has logged on a new person for the last half an hour, but all 18 have stayed on, which is the longest. They might have gone to sleep, mate. Yeah. Mark McGrath, you might have tipped him, I reckon. This might be the longest podcast to date. So you've, you've, you might have, yeah, you've got the longest there. And also, you've at the moment, this is the 40th episode, but you've definitely been the biggest name drop to the, to the point where I just had to Facebook. Oh, my, my pleasure, mate. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'll speak on behalf of everyone that watches this live as well as the future people that watch it on when it's a, a podcast. The recording, we yeah, really cherish the gems you've dropped throughout the last hour and a bit. So thank you so much for your time, your experience and, and all the stories, John. Really appreciate it. Mate. Well, my, my pleasure. And if I can finish by saying that if I've said something here that may have captured the imagination of someone or they want to know more information, please just go to my website. And I don't mean it's a promotion for me, but if you just um, go to Queen Elite Sports Services, my mobile phone is there, my direct email is there. Any questions you've got or there's something that you think I may have that can help you. I don't believe in uh, secrets. There's no secrets in coaching. And if people tell you there are, what they're doing is saying they're very insecure with what they're doing. So I don't believe in secrets. If I've got it, you can have it. So if I've said something and you think you'd like to expand on it, just send me an email. Make sure you tell me that you heard me on this podcast and I'll turn it around just as quick as I can. Fantastic. That's great, John. Thank you so much, mate. Really appreciate it. Great great talking with you and yeah, all the very best with your future podcast. Beautiful. Cheers, John. I'm all sure right. We'll catch Bye for now. Catch up. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Make sure if you enjoyed the episode to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our website, preparelikeapro.com, where you'll join over a 1,000 footballers and you'll receive a free strength conditioning program as well as high-performance presentations from our coaches. Uh, if you want to work with one of our coaches at Prepare Like a Pro, either one-on-one if you're based in Victoria or on our online program, direct message us on Instagram or send us an e- email at support at preparelikeapro.com. But once again, thanks for listening and thanks for the questions for those that sent it in. All the best. Cheers, guys.